He is risen. All right, I didn't know if I was going to get you on that one. It is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. We gather as a church body this morning, and we proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Easter is not simply a Christian holiday we celebrate. It is a doctrinal, biblical, deeply relational, heartfelt confession that in human history 2,000 years ago, something, something supernatural happened in this world. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in our place to pay for our sins, and rose again three days later, conquering sin and death. There is no equal event in human history, past or present. They all pale in comparison. If the resurrection is true, it matters more than anything else. The dead God-man rising from the grave will have more eternal significance than what career you choose, your marital status, your physical and financial ailments, or the dreams and accomplishments you hope to attain in this world. We continue our series this morning as we consider the character of the church. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't, and turn to John 14, as will be in verses 15 through 26. Uh, Our sermon this morning is entitled, The the Spirit-Driven Church. This has great relevance as we celebrate on a Resurrection Sunday. Because even if you believe in God, even if you believe in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, even if you believe that He's coming back one day, and you believe in eternal realities like heaven and hell, you are, you and I, left with a question. How does Jesus, how does he love me now? Yes, I get that Jesus loved me and he died for me on a cross. And I get that Jesus loves me and he promises to come back one day. But what about today? How does Jesus love me in the mess I'm going through, in the life that I'm living right now? Does he love me? Perhaps that's a question many of us wrestle with on an Easter Sunday. Well, our main point, the main idea that I would submit to our hearts this morning is this. Faithful followers of Christ know resurrection love. We know resurrection love. Our our passage this morning in John 14 finds itself packed in the middle of what is known as the upper room discourse between John 13 and John 17, those chapters. Jesus is with his disciples observing and celebrating Passover. For his hour is coming to be crucified on a cross. And these chapters, John 13 through 17, they're pregnant. They're they're loaded with a theme, a common theme. Love. The word is used 34 times in these chapters, and it's used eight times in the passage that we'll consider this morning. Let me read how the upper room discourse begins and finishes. John 13, 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own to the end, Loving his own to the end, those who were with him. John 17, 26, the end of the upper room discourse. Jesus says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's bookended. This upper room discourse, this final time with Jesus and his disciples is bookended by love. So we come this morning to John 14. And we're in the middle of Jesus loving his disciples to the end. How do we know his resurrection love? And what does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, have to do with this, with us? How does the Spirit of God shape and drive our church. Would you read with me, please, chapter 14, verses 15 through 26? Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> and, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things, these things, I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Apostle John, here in this passage, he kindly provides us a snapshot, a picture. First, we see that Jesus loves. He loves because he gives us intimacy. Intimacy. Now, we tend to understand intimacy in physical and emotional terms. 
It's an affection, a familiarity perhaps, an experience, a closeness with someone, whether it's a dear friend or a spouse or a family member. In the upper room with his friends on that day, Jesus promises intimacy with any disciple, any faithful follower of Christ. Where's this promise? Well, look again at verse 16. The Father will give you another helper to be with you forever. Well, this certainly describes intimacy. Let's sit on this verse for a moment. Forever is a long time. And it does speak to intimacy. We will have an intimate relationship with the Spirit of God that lasts forever, he says. But what does Jesus mean when he says, another helper? Who is the first helper? Well, let me be a little snobby here and just say that I don't like my ESV translation here. Uh, You may have a translation that says, the Father will send the comforter, or the counselor, or the advocate. An advocate is probably the best use of this word. It's the same word that John would use in 1 John 2.1, where he says this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Our advocate, the one who stands for us and with us, is Jesus. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying here in our passage. He's saying it to his friends. He's saying it to you and I. The Father is sending another helper, another advocate besides me. This advocate, he will come and stand for you and with you forever. The Spirit of God. But it wasn't just intimacy in lengths of days and in being forever. It was an intimacy and proximity, Jesus promised those of his disciples. Notice at the end of verse 17 again. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, this spirit of truth, will not simply know of you or be in the vicinity of you. The Spirit of God will be with you and in you, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit Well, now for you grammar nerds, perhaps, how is the Holy Spirit described in these verses? He and him. He and him. You know him. He dwells in you. See, the Holy Spirit, my friends, is not some external force or power. This is not Star Wars, kids. The Holy Spirit, rather, is a person. The third person of the Trinity, God, three in one. Jesus doesn't promise you intimacy by giving you some kind of token of himself. No. He doesn't give you some kind of symbol or some kind of power. He promises a person. Now, 17 years ago, I tricked my wife into marrying me. And when we got married 17 years ago, she didn't simply say, Matt, I love you. Here is a token of my love. And and she pulls out of her pocket a locket of her hair. She didn't give that to me. No, she didn't give me a token of her love. She gave me her. I got a partner. I got a companion. I got someone who will drink tea with me late at night. I got someone who will tell me what shirt to wear on an Easter Sunday morning. I got her. 
And in the same way, in a much more intimate way, the Father and Son, in tandem, send a person to live in you and with you. That's true intimacy with God. You see, my friends, He is a personal God. I read one writer this week who wrote this. If we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? If we rightly think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? He goes on to say that the first thought is entirely pagan, and the second thought is New Testament Christianity. But I want us to look again very carefully at verse 20. He says, In that day you will know. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. (laughs) In what day? In what day will I know this? In the day Jesus will come. He will demonstrate that he has not abandoned his disciples. He will not leave us as orphans, verse 18 says. He will come. Now, this could be understood two ways. It was immediately true some days later. Jesus died and was buried and he came back. He came to his disciples. He resurrected. He is risen. I was going to wait you out on that one. He is risen. He physically and tangibly came back from the dead. And as we read in verse 20, they knew, they knew at that moment that Jesus was divine, that he was the God-man, that he is in the Father, and by faith, we are in him. It can also be understood another way. That by sending the Holy Spirit, Jesus has come into our hearts. And as he says, is in us right now. We are not left as orphans. Jesus loves his disciples and he loves us to the end. He loves us by dwelling in our hearts and souls. He has come now and provides intimacy with us. Verse 23, he says that I and the Father, we will make our home with you. What is a home? Is a home simply simply the, the physical address in which you receive your mail? Is your home the physical address where you, you simply you lay your head down at night? No. No, a home rather is a place where there is love and security and intimacy. And Jesus says, by faith, I will come to you. I will dwell with you. I will make a home. I will provide for you security and love and comfort that you seek and try to obtain in this world. He will make his home in us. And Jesus has come. He's come and he reigns over our hearts and in our hearts now. My friends, are you lonely and discouraged? Do you feel abandoned and isolated? Have your earthly relationships left you wanting? Do you feel like an outcast? Jesus, His resurrection, Jesus 
loves you. And you can know resurrection love. By the Spirit of God on a Resurrection Sunday, you and I can know intimacy. Intimacy with God. And we are a Spirit-driven church. A Spirit-driven church, not just as Jesus gives to us intimacy, but we see He also gives us life. He gives us life. This is stated kind of in an implicit way in verse 16. It says, we have the Spirit forever. Implying not just this life, but the next one. The next one in eternity with Him. But we see this idea of giving life more explicitly in verse 19. Look at it again. Verse 19, he says, because I live, you also will live. This is a remarkable statement, my friends. Jesus is telling his disciples, those who would be faithful followers of Christ, that his resurrection, his rising from the dead, his state as a living God, even right now at the right hand of the Father, being in heaven, it has a direct implication on your life, on your living. His living means you live. And what exactly is Jesus saying here? He said something similar to this in John 6, 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds trust on me, he also will live because of me. Now, there is a, a sense in a, a Colossians 1 kind of way that all of us physically have life because Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the entire world. That is true. But Jesus' words here, as he loves his disciples to the end, is to communicate that the Spirit of God gives us life spiritually and eternally. In the language of Jesus, we're talking about something like his interaction in John 3 with a man who was considering Christianity. And Jesus told this man, you need something that you don't have. You need to be born again. You need a new life, an inner life, a spiritual life. You need an eternal life in which you do not possess, Jesus says. My friends, the life that Jesus gives by the promised advocate, the Holy Spirit, is the good news of what we call the gospel. If you are here and you are considering Christianity, or you have been a faithful follower of Christ for many years, here is the reminder that you and I need. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is not some Christian tradition we simply recognize once a year to make us feel better about a someday heaven. That's not the gospel. But rather, the life that Jesus gives us by the Spirit is a giving of a new life here and now in the life that you've been given. The good news of Jesus is that by trusting in who he is, trusting in what he's accomplished on that cross, and the victory that he had overcoming the grave, that means that you're forgiven of sin. And you're not just forgiven of sin. You're declared righteous. Yes, you, your life, you're given a new heart in Christ, a new life in Christ. 
It's not simply blood that would flow through your heart to give life to your body, but rather the scriptures say it's the spirit of God that would now flow through your heart and soul, changing you more and more into the image of Christ as you are sealed for a someday eternity. What that means is whatever you are wrestling with this morning, no matter how dark, sinful, callous, skeptical your heart may be, there is great grace for you and I in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can have life. You will live because Jesus lives. He is your life source. He illustrates this well for us in the next chapter. Known well, John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever continues in me, whoever has their life source from me, well, he it is that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. Jesus, by his Spirit, loves us here and now. His Spirit gives us life and fruit now today. So children, Jesus promises to give you life as you are in school and seeking to honor your mom and dad. I know they don't deserve it, but but he'll give you life and help you. Teens, by his spirit, he gives life to you as you navigate how God has wired you and what it may mean for you to go out into this world as an adult. Adults, he gives life to you as you find true satisfaction in him and not the fleeting things of this world. My older friends, Jesus gives life to you here and now as you see your body breaking down. Praise the Lord. He gives life. But lastly, I'd like us to see from Jesus' own words, he doesn't just give intimacy and life. Those are beautiful things. But he gives us knowledge. Knowledge. Now, the knowledge of a faithful follower of Christ may be different from the knowledge you're thinking of right now. The knowledge of the Christian is not simply obtaining and downloading information about Jesus. This is in the Matrix. But rather, it's an experiential knowledge. It's something you know because you've lived it. And the scriptures talk about this kind of knowledge all the time. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew chapter 1, the scriptures say that Joseph did not know his wife until Jesus was born. He never met her? He didn't know what family she was from. No, he didn't know her. He, He didn't sleep with her. There wasn't an intimacy, he says. Well, what about Matthew chapter 7? Many are coming to Jesus. Jesus, I did this in your name, and I did this for you. I showed up on Easter Sunday. And Jesus says, depart from me. I do not know you. What? Like, he didn't, he didn't know their name? He didn't know their, he didn't know their phone number? He didn't know they were a 218-er or a 612-er? He, he didn't know, you know, Brainerd Cities? He didn't know that? No, he's saying... I. I didn't have an experiential relationship with you. John 2, same thing. 
Jesus, the, the scripture says that Jesus did not entrust himself. Many believed in his name, but he did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself because he knew them. But he, he knew their bank account information. He knew their social security number. He knew what team they rooted for. No, no. Knowing in the scriptures time and time again has this idea, not just academic intellectual knowledge, but of experiential relationship knowledge. True knowledge, knowledge given and enabled by the Spirit of God is one that knows both intellectually and experientially. The Spirit, this helper in our text, this advocate in verse 26, is the one who will teach us all things and bring to remembrance what Jesus taught. What exactly has Jesus been teaching in this passage? Well, verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Knowing equals obeying. Well, verse 17, we read this at the end. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Knowing equals personal relationship. Well, what about verse 21? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Knowing and obeying, keeping God's commandments is equal to a loving relationship. One more, verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Loving Jesus, knowing God means obeying, keeping what he actually says. I know that's just a, a crazy idea in our culture. What if we actually function as faithful followers of Christ who followed God's word? He says that means we would actually know him. What we simply can't get around is that Jesus loves his disciples to the end. He loves us to the end by giving us a spirit-driven knowledge of God. A knowledge that doesn't simply recite verses memorized from Awana. A knowledge that isn't some vague description of God that we hear from a country song on the radio. But rather... The Spirit of God gives us a tangible, empirical, real, experiential knowledge of God, personally. Jesus will later tell his disciples and any reader, any reader in John 16, 7, that it is to our benefit and advantage that Jesus is no longer here. You see, Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven is the gun that fires and sets off the chain event where the Spirit of God would come and reside into the hearts of faithful followers. If Jesus was here, physically, you and I can dismiss a person. We can shut the door on someone we disagree with. But there is no avoiding dismissing or running from the Spirit of God that supernaturally changes our hearts to know Him. Can I ask you to consider a personal question this morning? Do you know God? Do you know Him? 
Do you know and experience the beauty of forgiveness? Do you know the experience of a new heart? A satisfaction beyond all things of this world? If you don't, if you don't know him, if this is not a reality in your life. Well, the, the theologian Justin Bieber says something about, I don't know why you're laughing. He says something about running to the altar like a track star. Like there's a sense in which there should be an urgency in your heart to know and to experience. Consider that perhaps your attendance here this morning or you're watching online is not some cosmic accident or random occurrence. Consider that perhaps you are here to wrestle with the deep and eternal realities of a life of knowing God. Or just some of us that maybe we've known God, but now it's become dry and shriveled and distant. Whether you are religious or not, this fresh reminder and challenge is something we all need desperately. To know Him in experience. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Well, maybe, you, maybe you, you don't like Bieber, so let me give you someone else. J.R. Packer says this. Once you become aware that the main business that you and I are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great, a great deal of knowledge about Him. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve Him, boldness to share Him, and great contentment in Him. For those of you who are faithful followers of Christ, like me, you are in great danger this morning. The danger is that you and I would come to a church service on an Easter Sunday and lose sight of what the resurrection of Jesus really represents. The triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worked in harmony to demonstrate a deep love and affection for people made in God's image. Jesus rose again so that you would know him in that it would change your life. The knowledge of God affects you, not just today, but you know tomorrow's Monday, right? Knowing and experience God grounds you in the midst of suffering. Knowing and experience God sustains you when you doubt He's real. Knowing and experience God enables you to know your true identity in Christ in the midst of a contrary world. Knowing and experience God secures you when your Christian performance seems lacking. Jesus is enough. Knowing and experiencing God excites you as you find your life's purpose in Him. And knowing and experience God most supremely brings great glory and honor to his name. 
Lakewood, by God's grace, we are already, already a spirit-driven church. An imperfect and flawed body of Christ, no doubt, but we are here. We are growing and being changed by Him continually. A people by the Spirit who have been given, we've been given, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been given intimacy, new life, and a true experiential knowledge of God, the God of the universe. My friends, faithful followers of Christ know resurrection love. That is why we are here. That is why we celebrate. That is why we're looking so pretty this morning, because we come lifting high the name of Jesus, who gives love, who loves to the end. When was the last time you thought and considered deeply the love of Christ for you? Can I just encourage you? Sunday morning on an Easter morning can often be a very guilt-ridden trip. You come here this morning and you're thinking, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in church. You know, Easter, I probably need to get back to church because it's just been a minute and my relationship with God is lacking. My performance in the Christian life is subpar. My eagerness to know him, to love him, to follow him, to be with God's people, to sit under his word, it's, it's, it's shriveled, it's gone. And you can come here this morning, perhaps beating yourself up, even though you've dressed your best. Can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, that what you need to know most supremely, most deeply, is that it is not your performance in which gains you favor and access and love to God. It is the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that is sufficient. It is not your work that earns you love. It is Christ's finished work that sustains an everlasting love for you. So it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Don't beat yourself up. We are a spirit-driven church that clings desperately to these promises. Would you pray with me? Father, these are the promises we cling to, that there is, therefore, no condemnation, no anger, no judgment, no frustration, no distancing to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, because he died and rose again, we have hope for tomorrow. So, Lord, would you press these truths into us? Would they sustain us, not just on a Sunday morning, but would they be the very truth that we cling to as we go out into this world, into the life that we've been given? Would we remember on a Monday morning that the resurrection of Jesus is verifiable proof that he loves us and that he's for us? Father, show yourself to be real. Show yourself to be near. Show yourself to be powerful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.